Thank you again. We have a lot of work to do, show time to do it. After we have finished the four, the three lectures, it should be four, but we will we, we start with three. <laughs> the lectures will be transcribed. All of us will take our respective lectures and build in the documents. And I will edit all of the lectures into a book and start on contain, in addition to an extension of what we have said here, the major documents on the extension of global white supremacy all over the world, how it started, Greek attitudes, Roman attitudes, even the attitudes of semi-white people like the Arabs, who will separate custom from religion, things that you believe to be the truth that is really folklore. It's so difficult to get people to recognize that certain things were imposed on you that were alien to your society, that came out of other societies, and you accept these things and willing to kill each other over them, and there's a word of truth in it. All right, we don't have time for any form of chit-chat. The focus of my talk, <clears throat> all too short given the subject, the focus of the talk will be global white supremacy from the end of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century and the African independence explosion. Now what had happened at the end of the 19th century, African people all over the world had engaged in protracted revolutions and had given themselves something they need right now, something their children need right now, something all of them misinterpreted and removed from their memory, the longest revolutionary heritage of any people on the face of the earth. Given up a true revolutionary heritage, they began to follow people who didn't know where they were going. They began to accept books called the Bible they begin to hear stories about the rescue of a holy grail that, that number one wasn't holy, number two wasn't laws, <laughs> number three wasn't there in the place. <laughs> there is an essential myth through the life of most of the people in the world. Now, with the interpretation of the curricula as a feel-good curricula, the criticizers of our desire for a correct 
curricula have had nothing but a feel-good curricula. But they don't want anyone else in the world to feel good. <laughs> now, if they stop telling lies about themselves and integrate our truth, Maybe all of us can feel good together and you have universal humanity other than global white supremacy. <laughs> what the fight over the curriculum is about is about their claiming things that they couldn't possibly have produced because the things that they claim are older than their existence. <laughs> it came out this morning on WWRL, a man, our label, it called, reported about some 12 gates <laughs> in the names of the 12 gates. City. I said, that presupposes that I believe the story in the vice place. It also presupposes that I accept Jerusalem as the Holy Land. And I do not. Europe. 
South America, that United continent, contributed very little to Europe. They had contributed very little to Europe. Now, the race in between was in conflict with itself, not with the conversation here, because these were want to be whites. I wish to hell I was white. Pretending they are white. That's another lecture, another day. When I have enough strong men to protect me from the podium to the street where the car is running. Demeaning his culture 
and demeaning him. Some traditional Africans who would not wear their clothes or adopt their tastes decided to fight. They did not go to London to Whitehall Street. They did not go and laugh at the smiling lady <coughs> under the chandelier. The minute the Africans went to London and saw a chandelier and had a cocktail in his hand, he was doomed. <laughs> so global white supremacy was manifesting itself in many ways because they had produced a mechanism of control. Now having controlled the body, they wanted to control the mental wealth of Africa. They knew then what you still do not know. Africa is and has always been the world's richest continent. All right. And we are a rich people who are poor because we have not understood our riches. That juvenile delinquent who came out of Europe shooting babies in the back and calling himself a superior man at least knew something about the African who befriended him. He knew that he was politically naive. At the end of the 19th century, the Africans had 100 years of fighting this supremacy. The Europeans had created a literature trying to justify his superiority. This literature had to deal with the brain side, head measurement, a whole lot of things had absolutely no scientific basis. Doubt people looking for the missing link. The missing link cannot, link cannot be possibly found in any place except in Europe. So they created it. A man in Europe took a skeleton, buried the skeleton, dug it up. In the meantime, there were Europeans debunking all of this. No one paid any attention to then or now. But in the closing years of the 19th century, there was a royal prostitute in Belgium named Leopold who had houses of joy in different capitals of Europe and he was spending a whole lot of money on these houses because he kept them the year round and sometimes would use them about once or twice a year. He's looking around for capital. There are nations in Europe who did not get in on the slicing up of Africa. They would call a conference at Berlin while well, they would split up the rest of Africa with all those got a little muscle, the Germans got a big slice, the Germans got four nice pieces, Southwest Africa, now Namibia, the Cameroons, Togoland, now Togo, and Tanzania. 
they began almost a rehearsal for Nazism in Africa. Because the civilian governor of Southwest Africa was Jewish. The military governor was Herman Gary's father. No. See, if I didn't know what the documents, I wouldn't be saying it. <laughs> now, with, with these colonial wars being fought, African kings, so-called chiefs, been either driven into exile, driven to suicide, What do we got now? In the closing years of the 19th century, you got missionary-trained Africans who are now petitioning the European, going to his, appealing to his conscience, not knowing he had no conscience. Right. 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 No conscience to appeal to. <laughs> thou shall not, the religion that said thou shall not was meant for you. He gave that to you. <laughs> He didn't intend to obey it. And after the Berlin Conference, and France getting more, more colonial territory, Germany getting colonial territory, Belgium getting the big Congo, Portuguese getting a little piece, all of the gangsters agree on the slice. No African attending. And at this conference, an American Stanford allegedly attended the conference saying as his rationale that the Congo might one day be a place to sell American blacks. Lee Abraham Lincoln went through that same charade. Now you want to know what would have happened had Abraham Lincoln not been shot. I'm sorry he got shot. Had he not been shot, he had a mighty a movement to get all of us out of here. Even to the corner of Brazil, any place, just get you out of here. And why he did not believe in slavery, because it was an unwieldy labor system. He didn't believe in your presence and said point blank, you would never be the social equal of a white person. In any case, so while you are welcome celebrating Lincoln's birthday, do a little sobering thinking and read Lerone Bennett's famous article, Was Abraham Lincoln a White Racist? He asked the question and he answered the question affirmatively. He walked. All right, all right. Now, as we come down to the end of the 19th century, Africa is shifting gear. The warriors are leaving the field. The missionary trained African activists are moving on the field. In Ghana, a brilliant politician, E. Case the Hayford, is in charge of the youth. They exiled King Prempe and his cousin. Yay of Santiwa, who led the last of the Shanty Wall. And these walls were really walls to maintain 
European control over Africa, therefore a part of global white supremacy. At this juncture, we see North Africa coming under the French. We see the Arab who's a colonizer and a slaver being colonized. We saw resistance coming within this whole structure. And yet we see an intellectual movement existing in Africa in reaction to the continuous presence of the European. Along the coast of East Africa, Somalia, a man named Mohammed bin Abdullah Hassan, called, the British called the Mad Mullah, had fought the British up until about 1923. <coughs> Along the coast of West Africa, the Asante Wars in Ghana had lasted from 1905 until 1900 when the Exile Asante War. After the Exile Asante War, Case A Ford started a campaign for the return of the royal families and converted that campaign into a fight for independence. And when he died in 1931, he sent for a young student. Joseph B. Dunkwa to send for J.P. and said, J.P., the mantle is yours. Joseph B. Dunkwa, in turn, had a young student under his wing called Francis K. Nkrumah. Right. Francis K. Nkrumah, after attending the Pan-African Conference of 1945 in Manchester, England, was broke and in London, and like a whole lot of Africa, eking out a mere existence, serving the unfulfilled British woman. St. <laughs> 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 Patrick, unfortunately, deceased now. He said, when we get together, he said, John, one of these days, I'm gonna tell the real story about these African heads of state, what they had to do to get along. I said, Sinclair, have another cocktail. Sinclair, have another cocktail. Go tell the real story. He never told the real story. He never told the real story. My main point is that Joseph E. Dunbar sent for his former student that until the end of his days, he addresses Francis K. Krumer. He never called him quite. Just like he was in the classroom. And Nkrumah being brought home to take the mantle of leadership from Dunkwalk got impatient. And instead of waiting for the mantle to be handed to him traditionally, seized the mantle and led the country to independence. Had he waited for it two more years, he could have been done more peacefully he could, there could have been a mixture of tradition and modernism. It would have been a much better state with the infusion of traditional government. Now, we became, we were now becoming a prize to be captured because 
the land, the resources of Africa becoming a prize to be captured. Africans were now relating to Africans in the Caribbean and Africans in the United States. A great Caribbean figure, Edmund Blyden, had proclaimed and literally prophesied the concept of black studies in his inaugural address, Library of College, 1881. He had already written his crowning masterpiece, deserved to be reread right now. Christianity, Islam, and the Negro race. All of us are mixed up on all of us. We're mixed up on all forms of religion. We're mixed up on all forms of politics. The European was still justifying the domination of other people through politics. All right. Now, we had at the end of the 19th century a better pan-African network when it took two months for a letter to be delivered that we've got right now. People were not boasting of any island they came from. The Africans understood the artificial nature of the state divided by foreigners. Some of them understood the artificial nature of the religion imposed on them by foreigners. All of this was a form of global white supremacy. All over the world, it began to happen. It had reached Asia. In China, the Europeans had their own courts. In Shanghai, there was hotels. The Chinese and dogs not allowed. And some of the people who will spit on you now were now within being spit upon. All this is documented. Edgar Snow's work, another work called 400,000 400, uh, customers. The only Chinese woman that could go into one of the hotels had to be a prostitute or a cleaning woman. This kind of humiliation. The British had reduced an entire nation to dope. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. You think you can't survive crack, they were worse off than you ever was. <laughs> if they survived it, you can survive it. Right. But you ain't gonna survive unless you crack some heads. <laughs>
going to show you what they did that you still got to do until you stop, until you do it, you are jiving about independence, about freedom. And Japanese educator called in the, the youth of Japan and told them what had happened. And he sent them to the leading schools of the world, of, of the world, to get that information, get that technology. And if they smear that body weight in your face, apologize for having your face in the way. <laughs> so he sent them to MIT. They went to military schools in the United States and wouldn't even let them write first and sweep the floor. Two-thirds of all the field officers that faced America in, in the Pacific War were trained in America. Every field officer practically trained. Virginia Military Academy was the main trainer. Black men don't, it's not even there, even now. My main point is that by 1905, the Japanese had learned enough to take on a European nation. And when the Russians start messing with them, they start kicking butt. And they defeated them. And this shocked Europe so much until they began to propagate something called the Yellow Danger. This beginning in the basis of anti-Asianism manifests itself in the stereotypes in the movies. A Japanese uh, detective called Mr. Moto, Fu Manchu, Charlie Chan. And what did we have? Stephen Fetcher. That control over the movies all of this is global white supremacy. That control, that colonization of the Bible, that sending down Sunday school lesson with all white angels. Every single thing that came out of European, that came out of the European mind was meant to facilitate his control over the world. He's got no hesitation about it, and he's got no apologies. You buying a hook, line, and sing. You find this concept, all religion is good when it is practiced good. All religion can be bad, but all religion that I know of is used for one people to control another people. Because they kill the spirituality yeah. in the religion itself. The missionaries were handmaidens of colonialism. And they still are. The African trained by the missionary began to react. So global white supremacy was manifesting itself in the commerce of the world of that day. The Caribbean islands now realize that while 
their independence. Their emancipation came 30 years before black America. Their emancipation was a faith, and ours was a faith. And when you boast it, all you're saying is my favorite came before your favorite. <laughs> so many of them, the rebels, went back to the hills. The best example is uprising in Jamaica, 1865, Moret Faye, George Gordon, and, and that crowd. Now, in the United States, because of the pressure, we had produced the greatest line of intellects of any people living outside of Africa. The climate was cold in New England. You could only work a slave six months a year. So you, you begin to have slave carpenters, slave craftsmen. You would farm him out. Being an industrial slave, they made a little money on the side. They could buy, the, buy their way out of indebtedness. It wasn't quite as difficult. They began to read, write, run newspapers. Frederick Douglass escaped into this group. Yet the concept of getting back to Africa was prevalent. 5,000 Africans in this country had fought with the British against American independence, an incident left out of history. After the British lost the war, they had to get rid of them. So the British sent them to Canada and to Nova Scotia. Global white supremacy is now manifesting itself in the failure to acknowledge that every American citizen is a citizen. If you're a citizen, you need no civil rights movement or no civil rights action. The fact that you need it proves that they have not acknowledged you as a citizen. In a nation of immigrants, we are the immigrants against our will. We are the only immigrants who were invited here. Right. The nature of the invitation will not be discussed here. They were anxious to get us here. We had an affirmative action program waiting for us. No unemployment. No pay either. We transformed this nation. My point pointed that the first half of this 19th century, we were fighting against global white supremacy in the Back to Africa movement that had started during the American Revolution. The movement to settle Liberia, 1847, with Martin Delaney and the Jamaican Campbell going out to what is now Nigeria to search for a place. All of this was a reaction against global white supremacy. A lady in Nigeria who had been in the slave trade discovered 
that she was not a labor contractor and her people were not returning. She began to fight against the slave trade. She began to fight against other Africans in the slave trade. Her name was Madame Tanabu. And when she continued her fight, not only to get out of it herself, but to fight everybody in trade. Her husband had died, and there was a man pursuing her hand. And she told this man, I cannot marry you now because I have men's work to do, and I do not have time to be a woman. She fought every king in the slave trade. All right. And when she had removed the last king from his throne, she turned to the man pursuing her hand and said that, I am a woman now, I'll accept your offer. <laughs> you think you're not rich? Look what a beautiful offer that would make. What a beautiful offer. There's so many things we, we in our life that we have a good be a beautiful children's story, be a beautiful adult story. Beautiful story of conversion, the story of Madame Tannaboo. I can name you a hundred of them now. I've done nothing but research. Don't get me wrong, I'll research the latest for other reasons too. <laughs> Mirror, mirror. 
And another word, Kalan. Race in Kalan, Caribbean literature. The British had built in an army. Some of the islands, especially in Barbados, by telling them that they were English. And they became as English as the English. <laughs> and by enough infusion of blood in Jamaica, they would hold their hands because they're fighting their relatives. And yet there was a group fighting for constitutional government, consistently fighting for improvement. 1908, Marcus Garth would make his tour of Central America. 1914, he would be in London, studying under Deuce Muhammad Alley. And in Deuce Muhammad Alley's paper, he would read an editorial, which was a quote from, a, of all things, a, a white black nationalist, Edmund Booth who had grown disenchanted with other missionaries and went around Africa saying to the African, the white man can't be trusted. And when finally the African looked at him and asked him, can you be trusted? <laughs> to his everlasting credit, he said no. <laughs> and he proclaimed, I'm looking for the Africans. Marcus Garvey read it and added the phrase, I'm looking for the Africans, those at home and those Marcus Garvey and his entire movement was a result of reaction to global white supremacy. The African colonial movement was a result of it. The early church movement in the United States was a result of the fight against global white supremacy. We wanted to get back some of our African self. The Chief Sam movement in Oklahoma was as a result, Africans trying to escape global white supremacy. This story is told in a book called The Longest Way Home, The Chief Sam Movement in Oklahoma. Many blacks sold their property and gathered different, different harbors waiting for a ship to take them home to Africa. The Pap Singleton Movement for resettlement in the United States the Liberia movement uh, continued. 1915, Booker T. Washington was dead. Du Bois moved to the center stage of leadership, replaced soon by the attention given to Marcus Scott. The rise and fall of his movement has been told many times as an eight-volume book of documents edited by Professor Robert Hill on the life of Marcus Garvey. You can argue with Professor Hill's notes, you can argue with his introduction, you can argue with the fact that some of it seems a little conservative, but you cannot argue with the fact that he has given us the greatest documentation on Marcus Garvey right. ever going through the archives of most of the libraries where anything on God existed. 
I think Tony Martin's work equally demands attention. And when you're tired of those, or, and would forgive the modesty, I think my own work. <laughs> attention <laughs> because I'm going to extend these remarks into a full-flown book I need not do everything tonight and I'm a fan of both of my colleagues and I want you to hear them also so one of the things I admire about them Martin Luther King, he has such a magnificent way of closing things out. I think of too many closing and get, get confused about which one I'm going to use. <laughs> but I'm going to call on you not only to look at global white supremacy, but look at the global possibilities of African people coming together as a people across all national lines and across all religious lines. Vanny Cook has said, a race is like a man until it loves its own history in its own memory, it cannot fulfill itself completely. I say not only to understand global white supremacy, but to understand yourself. You must be acquainted with your history. I have said that history is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day, and it is a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells you where you've been and what you've been, where you are and what you are. Most important is to give you some direction about where you still must go and what you still, what you still must be. The relationship of a people to their history is the same as the relationship of a child to its mother. When we look at Europe crumbling, maybe we need to start imitating people who can't find their own way and start following people who don't know where they are going. We need to entertain the possibility that we can give the world a new human society. We need to heal some of these wounds some of all the cleavages between us. Take pride in wherever you were born, 
be parochial, but remember, the common denominator is African. Thank you. 